Hello, and welcome to this podcast from the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies. Hello, and welcome to this latest in the OIS podcast series. This one is being brought to you by the GAS programme. My name is James Henderson. I'm a Distinguished Research Fellow at the Institute. And with me today, I have Mike Fullwood and Jack Sharples, who are both Senior Research Fellows. And we're here to talk about a very current topic, namely the impact of the issues in the Red Sea on global gas markets. So as a bit of context, on November the 19th, 2023, Houthi rebels hijacked a car transporter in, in the Red Sea. And since then, the rebels have continued to target ships passing through the Red Sea by firing missiles at vessels. In response, as I'm sure many of you are aware, the US and the UK began airstrikes against the rebels on the 12th of January of 2024. And since then, no LNG carriers have passed through the Suez Canal, with several LNG shippers, most notably Gata, announcing publicly that they have suspended the conduct of LNG tankers through the Red Sea. Data from Kepler's LNG platform confirms that there are currently no tankers operating in the area, either to the north of the Red Sea at the Suez Canal or to the south of the Red Sea at the Bab al-Mandab and Gulf of Aden. So here we are today on the 26th of January, and we're going to discuss the impact of these issues on the global energy market. So Jack, let me come to you first. Let's talk overall first. To what extent has this disruption impacted the volume of, of shipping overall through the Red Sea? The volume of shipping in the immediate aftermath of that first hijacking didn't really change very much. Taking data from Portwatch, which is backed by the IMF and is publicly available, the volume of, of shipping of all types through the Red Sea, as measured at the Bab al-Mandab, started to decline from around the 14th of December. But then we had this renewed decline from the 12th of January, as you say, immediately following the launch of the airstrikes against the rebels. Now, to put the numbers on this, normally you would see at least 60, possibly closer to 70 vessels per day passing through that, that point. But actually, that fell below 60 vessels a day in late December, below 50 at the beginning of January, and below 40 per day on the 15th of January. So now, by late January, we've reached a new low of about 35 vessels per day. So if you want to put it in broad terms, there is probably only half as many vessels traversing the Red Sea as would normally be the case. And this is actually having a slightly outsized impact because the volume of shipping in terms of metric tons has fallen even more sharply than the, than the number of vessels. So we're down from what would normally be about 5 million tonnes per day of shipping this time last year, down to about 2 million tonnes now. So clearly it's having a, a sizable impact. And the diversions are causing the vessels to go where? So a significant proportion are being redirected around the Cape of Good Help at the southern tip of Africa. So again, looking at data there, the seven-day moving average for the number of vessels there from early October to late December was around 50 vessels a day. But by early January, that had risen to about 70. And during the rest of January, the moving average was somewhere between 60 and 72 vessels per day. So with the transit via the Babel Mandat, probably 25 to 30 vessels a day lower than usual, and transit around the Cape of Good Hope being sort of 20 to 25 vessels per day higher than usual, at least some of the vessels being diverted from the Red Sea are going elsewhere. It's just that the majority are continuing on their on their route, but going around Africa instead of via the Red Sea. Okay, well, let's come on to the gas market then, uh, more specifically. So I mentioned in the introduction that there's no LNG passing through now. I mean, how long has that been the case? And what's the sort of the recent history of LNG passing via the Red Sea? So I think it's quite instructive to look at, let's say, the month back to late December. So if you take the, the month between the 25th of December and the 25th of January, 
10 LNG carriers passed through the Suez Canal, of which seven were Qatari deliveries to Europe, and three were actually Russian LNG cargoes that had loaded at Zeebrugge and were delivered onward to Asia. But as you mentioned, there haven't been any since the 12th of January, so clearly there's been a bit of a ramp down. And just one thing to note, those last three vessels that passed through on the 11th and 12th of January from Qatar to Europe have indicated that their return journey port calls will be at Las Palmas on the Canary Islands or Walvis Bay in Namibia, which suggests that they're returning home via the Cape of Good Hope. Okay, so who particularly has been uh, affected? I mean, I'm guessing the Qataris are, are the ones that have been most affected. What, what, what's happened to the, to the key players, if you like? If you think of the Middle Eastern LNG exporters being Qatar, UAE and Oman, actually UAE and Oman send very, very, very little LNG to Europe. This is primarily affecting Qatari deliveries, if you like, from, from south to north into the Mediterranean, and then to a lesser extent, Russian shipments to Asia. Because of course, we're at the time of year when the Northern Sea Route isn't available to them. So anything from Yamal that isn't destined for the European market that maybe is, I suppose, constrained by contractual commitments to be delivered to Asia physically is going to have to go around the Cape of Good Hope. So what actually has happened then in terms of volumes? I mean, what are the numbers behind what's being diverted, what's going around the Cape of Good Hope, what's heading now to Asia instead? What, what's the, um, what are the figures? The data from Kepler shows Gattery weekly LNG exports of about between 1.2 and 1.7 million tonnes, uh, so averaging about 1.5 million tonnes a week. Now, of those weekly volumes across the whole of 2023, an average of about 0.3 million tonnes, so about a fifth was delivered to Europe and the rest was delivered to Asia. So clearly this is only impacting a small segment of Gattery LNG uh, exports. From a European perspective, of course, Qatar is not the largest supplier to the European market. That's that's the US by, by a long stretch. But having said that, you would say that uh, Qatar and, and Russia are the, the next two largest suppliers to Europe after the United States. And if you look back through the final months of, of 2023, for comparative numbers, Europe was getting somewhere between four and five million tons per month of um, US LNG, but it was getting somewhere around 1.2, maybe 1 million tons per month of, of Gattery LNG, and between one and one and a half of, of Russian, and then the rest being made up of a sort of a, a bundle of others. So I guess the point to be made is this is affecting a segment of Gattery LNG exports, and it's affecting a segment of European supply, but it's not the majority, either on the side of the exporter or the importer. Okay. And what about those Russian LNG exports that were destined for Asia? Are they sort of sticking around in the Atlantic Basin as a result? They don't appear to be. Obviously, what, what comes out of Yamal, probably about, let's say, 73-74% of Yamal's total exports in 2022 and 2023 were destined for the, the European market physically. So the Asian share is, is just over a quarter. Now, the Asian deliveries from Yamal in the summer months, uh, which is generally sort of June to November, are sort of split between the Northern Sea Route and the Suez Canal. But obviously, we're in the, the winter months right now. So that is, you know, deliveries via, via Suez. So that's, that's really impacting about a quarter of Yamal exports at the moment. But obviously, Yamal, you're looking at a ballpark of 20 million tonnes per year. If you take a, a quarter of that on a monthly basis and drop it into the, the Asian market, again, it's a segment, but it, it's by no means earth shattering, I suppose. OK, so the overall story seems to be then that, you know, volumes arriving are one, 
not as significant as you might think. And two, they're arriving, but just by a longer route. So if we think about it like that, then in terms of distance, time and money, what actually is the, the impact? Let's go back to Qatari LNG on the Red Sea route being unavailable. How, how has that impacted, if you like, the economics of the delivery of, of Qatari LNG to Europe? In terms of shipping distances first, so in, in thousand kilometres, the journey from Qatar to Rotterdam is about 11,500 kilometers. That is comparable to a journey from Qatar to Northeast Asia. For example, it's about nine and a half thousand kilometers to Hong Kong, but about twelve and a half thousand to Tokyo. So when the Suez Canal is available to Qatar, it does have pretty good sort of arbitration between the two, particularly given that it owns its own tankers. And if the, the shipping distances are comparable, the fact that it has regas capacity in both markets means that it, it does have pretty good scope for arbitrage between the two. However, if you want to get from Qatar to Europe around the Cape of Good Hope, you're looking at something more like 20, 21,000 kilometers. So Kepler estimates that that journey would take an additional 10 or 11 days and that the round trip cost would be an extra sort of 40 US cents per, per MMBTU more. So the in, in the current price environment where European prices are, are sort of nine US dollars per MMBTU, but the spreads between Europe and Asia are somewhere around the, the ballpark of $1.25. Yes, that extra you know, 40 US cents per MMBTU is, is not pleasant, but it's manageable, let's say. But it's rather more the question of the time and the impact that has on your uh, effective shipping capacity that's an issue. Mike, let me come to you then and say, you know, it looks like, certainly from an energy perspective, a gas perspective, the, the disruption in the Red Sea has not had that dramatic an impact? Would that be fair to say? What are, what are the markets telling us in terms of prices? I guess the short answer is not a lot. Well, not a lot has really happened to disrupt the sort of general downward trend since the beginning of November. You know, I guess the weakish levels of demand in Europe and some other economies, because the, the, the winter, apart from a few cold days or weeks, the winter has been relatively warm. Apart from the cold spell we had here a couple of weeks ago, it, again, it's, it's relatively warm. So the demand is not really being pulling up the need for LNG or the need for gas at all, added to which, as, as Jack fondly talks about on all the uh, all the podcasts, there's loads of gas in European storage. So European storage is a big buffer to any sort of disruption that, that might come out of uh, the Qatari volumes taking a little bit longer to, to arrive in Europe because, yeah, OK, we can, we can wait another 11 days, if that's what uh, Jack was saying, and just take the gas out of storage if we need to do so. So... The market has been really quite sanguine in terms of the the potential impact of this. Now, obviously, we can discuss this later. That if this dragged on for a long time, then that outlook could change. You've mentioned that you know short term there's not been much of an impact, but longer term, if this carries on, then things are clearly you know there's a potential for greater risks. Can you just delve into that a little bit more and and sort of explain what you mean about the longer term risks? Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I think the if it goes on for months or even a year, I mean that would then be start, I think, to have potentially uh, bigger impacts. As Jack said, it's, it takes about twice as long, let's talk about Qatar, for it to send uh, LNG tankers around the Cape of Good Hope to Europe rather than through the Red Sea and Suez Canal. So you know, other things being equal, if they don't have any more tankers, and that tanker's got to do a round trip, given that Qatar sends about 20% of its LNG to Europe, that effectively reduces its capacity by 10%. Those you know, you can't replace those tankers. Let's, let's assume that that's about sort of 10 billion cubic meters of lost 
supply. And that is about 2% of the global LNG capacity. So that will begin to sort of tighten the market somewhat. I mean, now clearly there's potential for Qatar just to send more to Asia and European volumes to be replaced. Possibly these these phantom Russian volumes, which might sort of stay in Europe rather than sort of travelling on somewhere else or more from the US. So they can sort of be mitigated. If we go back to the fact that you lose 10% of Qatari supply, then that tightens the market. So you'd expect to see globally somewhat higher prices. That doesn't really have anything to do with the fact that it's going to cost you more to ship it because that gets taken care of by either Qataris or the buyer. You know, the, the market is prices, what the market price is. So you'd expect to see a small rise, I would have thought, in both Asian and European prices on a sort of global basis. The issue would arise, uh, I think, when we come to the refilling of storage in summer, because it's obviously clear with all the gas that Europe has in storage, then you can take the gas out of storage rather than taking the Qatari tankers. But in the summer, you've got to refill that. And that's when, as we said before in other podcasts, that's when we might see the market tightening even more if there is a prolonged impact of this and Qatar can't find tankers from elsewhere or chooses not to. So essentially, it's it's a reiteration of the point you've been making for a while, which is that although the market conditions are benign right now, mainly because the weather's warm and the economies are not doing quite as well as people had hoped, we're still in a relatively tight position. And this is just one more factor that could tighten it further. Yes. I, I mean, it's, if you're talking about maybe two, three BCM not coming in the next three or four months, that means you take two, three BCM more out of storage, you're refill two, three BCM more. So it's just adding to the, the sort of pressure that there might be at the same time you're not able to replenish storage from as much Qatari volumes in the first place because they're they're still down through the year. So it kind of ratchets up through the year. So you would expect to see a small tightening of the market you know, through the summer and possibly into next winter if this persisted for a very long time. Before we sort of conclude on all this, Jack, I'd like to come back to you if I may, um, because obviously there's one other kind of choke point where, where there's an issue at the moment, and that's the Panama Canal. Can I just ask you first, what is going on at the Panama Canal? There are restrictions, but what's causing them and how long are they likely to go on? The the key point about the, the Panama Canal, which people may or may not be aware of, is that it's not just a single channel, that it actually consists largely of a man-made lake uh, in the middle of Panama with short canals at either end with locks. Now, the reason this matters is that the man-made lake is about 26 metres or about 85 feet above sea level. So every time ships go through this section of locks, both when they enter Lake Gadun and when they come out again, water is lost out into the Atlantic and Pacific uh, oceans. Now, of course, that man-made lake is replenished every year with rainfall and tributary rivers. But of course, if you have any period of drought, then that replenishment isn't really as voluminous as you would like it to be. And that is what has happened in Panama in the second half of 2023. So even as early as the middle of the year, the Panama Canal Authority was announcing restrictions on uh, shipping through the through the canal. And those restrictions were then tightened in October when they announced that they'd had their driest October since records began in 1950. So what they did was reduce the number of vessels that were allowed to traverse the canal each month. So the restriction was something like 32 vessels per day uh, during the summer. This was then reduced down to 25 at the beginning of November, 24 in late November, 22 in December, 20 in January and 18 in February. 
However, uh, on the 15th of December, they announced that as a consequence of a bit more rainfall than expected and better than expected impact of water saving measures, the number of those reservation slots would actually be raised for January from 20, as they had planned, up to 24. So what we're seeing right now is about that number of vessels going through the through the Panama Canal. And obviously that's all vessels. So that's a lot of container shipping from the United States. It's oil tankers, you know, LNG carriers are just one of many different types of, of vessel that will be uh, traversing that route. So of course, the knock-on effect has been to redirect quite a few LNG carriers from the US Gulf Coast away either to the European market or taking a longer route to Asia through the Mediterranean and the Suez Canal. And then there, obviously, they've been hit by the disruption in the Red Sea. So now any US LNG tankers that are going to Asia not only don't have access to the Panama Canal, but they also don't have access to the Red Sea. And so they are also going around the Cape of Good Hope um, at the southern tip of Africa. Okay, so we've got more redirection. So Give me some of the numbers then. How much is being diverted? What are the new distances and and what's the impact on costs? If you take Corpus Christi as an example, from Corpus Christi to Rotterdam, uh, it's just under nine and a half thousand kilometres. Conversely, if you go from Corpus Christi to Hong Kong via the Panama Canal, it's about 20,000. So the, the distance from US Gulf Coast to Northwest Europe is about half that as you would to to Northeast Asia. Now, if you still want to go to Asia, but you don't have access to the Panama Canal, then it's about 24, 25,000 kilometers via the Suez Canal. So it's an increase from 20,000 via the Panama Canal to 25,000 via Suez. If you've got to go around the Cape of Good Hope, that goes up to around 27,500. And then the route that nobody uses is the 32,000 kilometers around the southern tip of, of South America. So I guess the point being that if you've got US LNG volumes that have absolute flexibility, then you know at pricing parity, shipping costs alone would suggest, and effective use of your tanker capacity, would suggest that you would prioritize deliveries to Europe. However, where you have deliveries that simply must be made to Asia for contractual reasons, let's say destination restrictions, then actually going via the Cape of Good Hope, as opposed to through the Suez Canal and the Red Sea, doesn't really seem particularly prohibitive. Yes, it's an extra 3,000 kilometers, but you know when you're going from 24,500 to 27,500 kilometers, it's, it's not a game changer, let me put it that way. Mike, let me come back to you. I mean, the distance between the markets, obviously, is one of the reasons for the Asian premium over Northwest Europe. Have these diversions made any difference to that premium? And are we, are, is that impacting trade flows? The graph in front of me about the premium between Asia and, and TTF or even MBP has, has narrowed actually in the last two weeks. So it's, uh, I guess that in some sense, that marginally could be the fact that Europe is a marginally, very marginally tighter market. It's probably just noise, really. I mean, if there is such a thing as a normal sort of differential between, you know, say JKM or, or, or the Argus A and EA and, and TTF, should be around a dollar, dollar fifty would sort of take account for the the differential transportation costs if you're talking about US LNG going to Europe or going to Asia but I, I wouldn't say it's had any sort of major impact yet spreads have narrowed a little bit in January compared to December it's not that material I mean so if anything I mean the market indicators are going almost in the opposite direction to the what, what one might expect in this situation which suggests that 
really the market really is a genuine, a very, very benign situation is dealing with this very well, which is quite which is quite a contrast to other trade, which is being affected quite dramatically. Well, I think on other trade, if you talk about containers uh, having to go around and they're, and, and they're much more intensive in terms of their use of the Suez Canal and the Red Sea, having to go around the Cape of Good Hope, if China is sending goods to Europe, I mean, that has a real cost impact. So the, the, the people buying the goods on the containers have to, have to bear those extra costs and that gets will get passed through to consumers and end users in terms of higher prices because of the way the gas market works. That doesn't happen. The people, the buyers or sellers, have to eat those costs and then be able to sell gas into the market at MBP TTF. So it does have a much bigger impact, in my view, on, if you like, goods, goods and materials as opposed to the LNG market. OK, Jack, I'm not going to let you go without having some comment on, on storage. Mike has alluded to it. Have we seen this storage buffer in Europe being affected at all? by the, the redirection of trade flows? Has, has it been used or, or is it, are we in such a benign situation that actually things are incredibly relaxed still? I would say things are incredibly relaxed still. So European storage stocks two days ago on the 24th were 78 BCM, which is very healthy for late January, um, especially if we're thinking in terms of wanting European stocks to be as close as possible, let's say, to 60 BCM by the end of March, so the end of the winter, so that then storage replenishments in the summer of 2024 would be ballpark similar to last year. Sort of another another 40, 45 BCM would, would get us back to full capacity. So, so far, storage is, is performing its function of, of acting as a buffer. But as Mike says, if this does persist and we start to, to draw down that storage more quickly, and then it persists longer into the summer, so it makes it harder to replenish storage, then that may become an issue. I think just one other point on timing, of course, is the restrictions on the Panama Canal are likely to last uh, until well into the rainy season. You know, the, the Panamanian rainy season is sort of May to December. So actually, it could be well towards the end of the calendar year when we see trade flows through the Panama Canal getting back to back to normal. But the point being that if that does normalize by the end of this calendar year, let's say, but which then allows more US LNG to start flowing to Asia, but the disruption in the Red Sea continues and we do see Gattery LNG settling into a pattern of sending more to, to Asia, then that again is likely to, to narrow the spreads uh, between Europe and Asia and tighten the market in Europe. Now, of course, the, the absolute opposite might happen. That you know the security situation in the Red Sea could be resolved, Gattery LNG could start coming back to Europe, but we're still facing months of restrictions at Panama that again is going to cause US LNG that has destination flexibility to prioritise the European market, and then you know that has a, obviously a bearish impact on on European prices. So actually, the timing is quite important, both in terms of storage withdrawals and storage replenishment, but also in terms of the point at which the Panama Canal and Red Sea issues do get resolved. Okay, Mike, let me come back to you for, for some final sort of wrap-up thoughts. What, what are your overall conclusions on this situation? Clearly not a good political situation in the Red Sea and, you know, the US and the UK particularly having to take military action. But in terms of markets and the, the kind of the outlook for the global gas market, what are your thoughts? Sort of probably so far so good. Not, not a lot has sort of been, been happening, but I think if it does get prolonged, if this carried on for six to nine months, then I think we could well see some 
sort of impact is sort of tightening the market in Europe. So that will be sort of the, the bottom line on this with a slight upward pressure on prices. But I think we've got a few months sort of away from that. But clearly, it's a topic of, of great importance of research. So I think uh, a visit to the Cape of Good Hope and Panama Canal, there's probably a cruise ship that Jack and I could go on to, to cover this. But um, I'm sure the Oxford budget would run to that. You just carry on dreaming there, my friend. Just on a final serious note, I guess the one thing that could really cause a spike in prices obviously would be some kind of strike on a hydrocarbon vessel in the Red Sea. I mean, unlikely as that is, given the protection they're being offered. I mean, not not your thoughts on the likelihood of that happening, but I mean, I guess it would be very much a, a sort of psychological impact on the market. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, that, that's a catastrophic scenario which uh, would escalate the situation. Probably more risky, although this, I think, does look unlikely, is something happening in the Straits of Hormuz which starts to shut in a lot of oil and, and LNG tankers, that would be a, a catastrophic impact on the market if that, that happened for a long period of time. That's much more of a risk to the market, I think, than anything sort of happening in the in the Red Sea area. I don't think that appears likely. I don't know what you think on that, Jack. Well, at the moment, of course, we're in a situation where it's only been about two weeks since we saw the cessation of LNG shipping in the Red Sea. So this is very early days in terms of analyzing redirections and reroutings. But I do think that if there remains a lack of confidence in the security of the route, then the market will have to just settle into a new pattern of behavior, which will involve more Gattery LNG going to Asia, probably more US LNG coming to, to Europe, and things will ultimately balance out. But obviously, I think, as as Mike said, this this has a much greater impact maybe on on container shipping, areas where the commodity is not fungible in the way that LNG is. The you know the LNG market has proven to be incredibly flexible over the last two years, from the you know the shut-ins in the US in the depths of COVID in 2020 to the uh, attraction of additional volumes to Europe at very short notice in 2022. And so I think that there is potential for the LNG market to adjust. It's just I think that the greater impact will be outside of the LNG market. Okay, great. Well, on that note, thank you very much, gentlemen. This may be a topic we come back and and revisit in future weeks. But for the time being, thanks very much indeed for your your comments. And we'll look out for our next podcast with you beaming in from your saga holiday around the Cape of Good Hope, Mike. With that, thank you very much to all our listeners. There'll be another gas program podcast in a couple of weeks time. But until then, uh, please look after yourselves. Take care and goodbye. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies. You can find other podcasts, as well as our written research, on our website at www.oxfordenergy.org. If you would like more details about our energy transition, gas, oil, electricity or China research programmes, then please contact us at information at oxfordenergy.org.